Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. You just let the thing drift over you, right, Michael? I mean, it's just, and Be My Baby, you're way too young for Be My Baby, but you know what I'm saying. I'm not too young for it. I mean, I'm too young to be in sort of that high school age as it sort of takes over your body as you listen to that song, but sort of symbolically what it represents. And this gets to that same point, but, but it's a, there's a patience and almost a prudence to the delivery here Lovely. that Patience just lets you prudence. linger over <laughs> had a song in 1956 which we played earlier because who names their kids Patience and Prudence The Tony Kornheiser Show is on now uh, The first thing I want to say is to Philip Rothman thank you so much for what you wrote and the best of luck the best of luck can't end soon enough um, Leslie Mendelson was the one who did Be My Baby And I sat here the other day, and I held up my iPhone, and I held it up to the microphone so that you could hear it. We played about a minute of it. I got a note from Leslie Mendelson. Thanks for sending my email along. This is to Nigel. Clearly, he got it. And thank you for playing Be My Baby today. Tony had such glowing commentary about it. I just wanted to add that the song was produced by Joel Dorn. I heard that Tony might have known him. If you haven't heard of Joel, he produced Roberta Flack, Donnie Hathaway, and Dr. John, just to name a few. When Joel and I spoke about recording that song, we knew we couldn't outdo Spectre, so we had to go the other direction by stripping the song down, and Tony nailed it. I also wanted to clarify, I'm in New York City. I forgot Tony was in D.C. I think the Long Island thing threw me off. Thanks again, (laughs) Leslie. I know Joel Dorn. Joel Dorn also produced, who's my favorite? Don McLean. And when I was doing a story for Rolling Stone, probably close to 50 years ago now, on Don McLean, I spent a lot of time with Joel Dorn, who said a couple of things to me that I cannot say on this podcast, but other podcasts can say about why he makes music. Joel Dorn was extraordinarily interesting. And the notion that Joel Dorn is working with Leslie Mendelssohn makes me very happy. Very happy. Don McLean, he hates my guts. Uh, It's okay. It's a long story. You've all heard it. From Michael Granberry, the arts and feature writer of the Dallas Morning News, who told us about Leslie Mendelssohn. Hey, guys, thanks for your mention again today of Leslie. Wanted to give you a heads up about something. My friend Eric Nadel, or Nadell, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, promoted Leslie's recent concert at Cafe Momentum in Dallas. Eric only moonlights as a concert promoter. He's a Brooklyn-born broadcaster who happens to be the voice of the Texas Rangers. (laughs) And he is also enshrined in the media wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Great guy with great musical taste. At any rate, he asked for your email address, so I suspect he'll be writing to you soon. Thanks again for all you do for original music. The voice of the Texas Rangers. So now we can put him in. With Dave Sims, yes. the voice of the Seattle Mariners, and Charlie Steiner, the voice of the Dodgers. So we got, we got that going for us. We got that going, people that listen. Okay? This comes from Eric Nadell. For 44 years, I've been the radio voice of the Texas Rangers. But my passion is music. In my spare time, I stage and promote concerts for nonprofits in DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth. The three people mentioned above and by you on today's podcast are all good friends of mine. I wanted to thank you for giving all of them time on your show, Leslie Mendelson, Dan Byrne, Michael Granberry. I was drawn to Leslie when I heard her duet with Jackson Brown, immediately looked her up, and when I saw she was from Long Island, I immediately sought her out. I grew up in Brooklyn, Midwood High School. I booked her to play a concert series I do at Cafe Momento, a nonprofit restaurant that trains juvenile offenders when they come out of detention facilities. We've done these concerts for three years, and none of the touring musicians who have played there have ever gotten the response Leslie got. She's truly amazing and a kind, thoughtful, brilliant person. I can't wait to get to New York this season and meet our father, who's also a musician. Dan Byrne has been a buddy of mine for a few years and also played at Cafe Momentum. Both at Cafe M and at a music festival in Florida, he and I put together an entire concert of baseball music. 
some of his songs and many others. And Michael's been a big supporter of my musical and charity efforts for many, many years and a go-to guy for musical recommendations. Anyway, just a sincere thank you from me and total admiration from what you do. Again, <laughs> the spider web that goes out there that catches in it all of these people. It, it, Michael, is it not amazing? Amazing. The spider web gets bigger every, every show, it seems. Like, I don't know who listens. The voice of the Rangers? But I think everybody who listens knows each other. <laughs> it feels it's that just, way. It really you know, does. nobody's sitting out there alone. Yeah. Nobody, wherever you are, if you're listening, if you're in France, like Papa Theam is in France, if you're in England, if you're in Australia, if you're in Canada, if you are now in the Ukraine, where people are and have communicated to us, and we wish this thing would stop right now, because people, innocent people, all of them, innocent people, are being killed. But wherever people are and they listen, my gratitude is enormous, right? I mean, it's oh, just absolutely. enormous. Just absolutely. Enormous. By the way, we, we will be hearing from Dan Byrne later on in the show. I want to tell people a story. This is my story for the day. Uh-oh. This is an example of not understanding how much things cost, ever. I, I don't understand this. Now, I need to preface the story by saying again for the thousandth time, I'm great. Don't worry. I've made a bunch of money. I'm okay. I can afford all these things that I'm talking about. One gallon of milk. It's, Take a guess. Um, I don't know. Two dollars and 75 cents. Uh, sure. Depending on size. Yeah, okay. Sure. Well, you, one gallon. Oh, okay. One gallon is a size. I guess I define the size. You yes. said that. Well, then, no, you, <laughs> you put low, me in a box. You lowballed it. Okay. <laughs> But I mean, so when I tell you these stories, it's not like I'm going into debt to do it. Right. You don't have to send me stuff. I'm okay. But it's, it's, it's a combination of my lack of knowledge as to what things cost and my utter stupefaction at what things cost. I went to the eye doctor a few weeks ago. Michael uses his eye doctor as well. He's a very nice guy. I needed new glasses. Um, I needed new lenses, not new glasses. I brought the glasses that I'm holding up now for people watching me on News Channel later, an old pair of glasses. I brought them. I was going to get new lenses in these glasses. The, you don't even like those glasses. No, not particularly. The, um, the medical plan that I have apparently allows for you to get a pretty good discount on one new pair of glasses every three years. It's probably been three years since I bought glasses. My eyes had gotten worse progressively worse and I needed new lenses. My eyes are fine for distance, they're fine for driving. I can see anything 300 yards away. I just can't read anymore. I can't read holding things close. So I got, you know, I, I gave them my glasses. Carol went in there too. Carol, of course, had to buy new glasses. This, this is what they do, they buy new glasses. The entire bill for everything covered by the plan at that point was something like $450, between $450 and $500. And I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to get a new pair of glasses or new lenses in an old pair of glasses. Carol's going to get a new pair of glasses. We had eye exams. We're up to date. It's fine. Sure. It's fine. So then when I go to pick up my glasses yesterday, I bring in another pair of glasses that I like. And I'm going to get lenses in those glasses. But I'm supplying the glasses. And the guy says to me, no, these glasses are too old. We have to heat up the frames to pop in the lenses. They're not going to take the heat. It's not going to work. You're going to have to get a new set of frames. 
Now, if you've ever been to an eye doctor, there's like five walls of frames. Let me take you to the display case on the left. Okay, five walls of frames. Now, none of them say, like at a clothing store, where this would say, these are all Gucci products, or these are all, you know, Hickey Freeman products, or these are all Canali products, and you'd have some sense what that meant. They're just up there. There's just a bunch of frames. So I said to the guy, do me a favor, pick out four, you know, let me, let me look at them. Yeah, top shelf. You know, let me look and, you know, I, said, I don't want to spend too much money, so let me just look at them. So he picks out four, they're different colors, they're different shapes. So I pick out one, looks okay. I said, oh, we'll take these. I don't even ask how much money. I, I'm not asking. Because in my mind, how could it be more for one pair of glasses than I just paid for this whole rigmarole that I went through, which was a little bit less than $500. I don't even ask. And I say, you know, just, you know, later on, just call me with what the bill is and I'll give you a credit card. Well, later on, Carol went to the eye doctor because she had to pick up her own stuff. I mean, I'm not going to pick up her stuff. And if she wants to get another pair of glasses, you know, another lens and another pair of glasses, she's got to be there. You have to be there physically, right, Michael? They mark, they, uh, look, yes, they put the, a pair of glasses on you and yeah, mark your eyes. between your pupils, right? Something like that. You're supposed to stare in but a certain But also to see if, like, if they're level on your face, because all of us have crooked faces. Hiding our crooked hearts. <laughs> I have a bill in my hand for what this costs. I, look, I didn't know. I didn't know that they were going to charge me again for new lenses. I can never even... I'm not saying, I'm not saying I sh- I'm right in that. I should have thought I of that. just didn't think of it. I didn't think of it because I still... I started wearing glasses in my 40s, and I sort of wear them for a very specific thing for reading, and I'm not in the glasses subculture. I don't understand all that. Michael, you had said to me, get these Warby Parker things because they're a lot cheaper. Sure, or just or something online, and there is a... I'm now trying to imagine you going through the virtual trying on process, granting your phone access to your camera, uh, and just trying them on can't do it. digitally. Can't do it. Right. Can't do any of that. Yeah. So there's the frames. If you think I was off on a gallon of milk, <laughs> I was off on the frames. Was it a, yeah. There's the frames. There's the lenses. They charge you for polishing the lenses and for glare-free. Glare-free, I think, is important if you're wearing them on television. Absolutely. I think that's really important. have to have that. Michael, tell the people how much I paid. Searching for... Oh, I do not feel comfortable sharing this <laughs> You seriously want me to say this? Give me back. I will say it. This is what it cost. And I was stunned. Again, don't, it, we're not looking for GoFundMe. Right. I got it. I got it. I would spend it, believe me, I'd spend it on something else in a heartbeat if it involved golf. It was close to $1,000. Bony, but when you break it down, I'm not surprised because the lenses, even though you have good distance for up close, the lenses are probably 200 bucks. Lenses are more. The lenses are $320. Now, there's a, I even got a discount because of my medical plan. I'm just saying it was, it, was, it was one of those things where when it was brought home to me and I looked at it, I went, oh, my God. Now, is this one of those prices no that's just naturally inflated because they know that, you know, one out of every three buyers is getting this supported through I their, don't know. They have the discounts. Plan. They have the discounts in parentheses. It's $320 for lens, for a lens, I guess. And I guess that's legit. I, I have progressive lenses, which are, I guess, a little bit more high grade because. Yeah, because it's both. Yeah. Now, I don't want to be the, the person that says, oh, I, I can top and that. I, 
I, I love this, these people. I mean, I'm, I'm not angry. Right. I'm just, it's another example of me at my age having no idea what things cost. None. Zero. I recently had to get glasses. Unlike you, I can see up close, but I can't see far away. So, for so driving, you're nearsighted and yes. I'm farsighted. Right. So for driving, my next driving right, test, no, I'm, I, I have to have them because I, I almost failed the test last I time. So I was like, I just need to get these. I thought I had By to By the way, my license. lenses are great. I can read things that I could, haven't been able to read in 20 years. I got these glasses like you. I went in for the eye exam, thought this would be like maybe a few hundred dollars. It won't be much. I am not going to read this number out loud. This is what I paid. Oh, my God. That's much more than me. <laughs> that's much more than me. Yes. Uh, well, I, so, I, I, mean, I wanted to get very angry, but I had not asked them ahead of time. And again, you like, don't even have a bad prescription. Here's, <laughs> the, minus here's one. the last thing I can do. That's a car. At my, at my particular point in life. I can't go up on the wall and start pulling down prices to see what the frames are. I can't do that. So by I'm design, not going to do, do when it. They don't right. have the names of the brands yeah. up. Do you think it's they want it? It's like putting a let me put a Mont Blanc pen in your hand today. They want you to get it down, try it on, and yeah. see how good you look. And again, I, I don't ever look good. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm just doing this for function. But I was, you know, it was it was a total wow. Yeah. It was a total wow to me. You know, I mean, it's some. This guess, reminds me of if you go to if you go to certain club fitters and they say, "Okay, you haven't been fit for a while. Let's put you in a couple of different yeah. uh, driver head shaft oh, combos." Sure. And before you know it, you're you're swinging something to go. How does that feel? Like feels pretty good. Let me see what the sticker says. And they're trying to put you in a six hundred dollars shaft. You go. Let's let's lower the price point a little bit. <laughs> so, see if I can get the same distance. Yeah, you sort of you know as Shakespeare said, uh, "You're foist in your own petard." I mean, I'm sort of trapped by being Tony Kornheiser. Yes. Like, I can't, I just can't say, whoa, hold on, Sparky. This is a lot more than I want to, I can't say it. Well, so you are big time a little bit where you say, like, yeah, just pick me down a couple. What's, yeah, but Do I, a little research. I figure it's, it's his business. There's, there's got to be yes. hundreds of frames on the walls there. Hundreds. I don't know one from another. Well, you could narrow the parameters a little bit, refine the search. But I, okay, I want a, I want a rimless frame. I want a metal frame. I want. I, don't even, no, I didn't even know that. I didn't know any of that. I always go. I want to. I want to walk out of see. here with a pair of glasses <laughs> so I can read for the next two years. Right, it's functional. Yeah. yeah. What was wrong with the old tech and the other glasses? Oh no, trust me, these won't work. You know. So, anyway, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. We'll take a break. Who do we have first? Mark Feinstein. Mark Feinstein. Mark yes. Feinstein. We'll. Bring us up to date if there's any movement at all in the baseball circumstance. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This song is brought to you today by earlier times. Back when ball teams traveled by train and had to have one on harmony. You might trade your second baseman, even though he's hitting 315, for a guy hitting 265 who never sings off key. We'll give you Cobb and Crawford. 
tossing Kovaleski. For the kid at the end of your bench who sings that harmony. I know this guy can't play center. But he's the American League's best tenor. <laughs> take Trout. Take Shohei Otani. Give us Doolittle and Swero and hear that harmony. This song is brought to you today by earlier times. Back when ball teams traveled by train and had to have one four-part harmony. It's brilliant. Dan Byrne is brilliant. It's called Earlier Times. I thought it was called Early Win at one point. And Dan Byrne writes, my friend Eric Nadell mentioned that he wrote in, he's the radio voice of the Texas Rangers for over 30 years, was the 2014 Ford Fricker winner, an HOFer. Guy from Brooklyn loves music as much as you do. Amazing. They all play in Mark Feinsand, and the only question to start with is where are we? Where are we today at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Friday? Where are we? I don't know that we're anywhere much different than we were yesterday. Uh, there mm-hmm. was a brief informal meeting between the two lead negotiators on uh, on Thursday, but uh, you know, no more formal proposals were, were presented. So I think right now we're, we're in that stage where we're waiting for the next uh, sort of official meeting where, where the negotiating will, will resume. Um, just as a technical point, given the fact that the uh, that baseball has locked out the players, it is it is it incumbent upon baseball to make an offer, or can the players make an offer? I would think actually that the next offer would come from the players, just for the fact that the last offer on I believe every uh, area of this CBA negotiation, the last offer came from the league. That that final offer that they made prior to the deadline to cancel games. So right now the offer that's on the table is the one that, mm-hmm. that came from the, from the owners. So I would think that the next move is the players, but you know, in this, in this negotiation, I don't know that rules always necessarily apply. I asked the same question of everybody who comes on this show and talks about baseball. The numbers have been made public by a variety of reporters. The difference in the numbers doesn't seem to be that vast. Why don't they just split the difference? Uh, that's a good question. I think, you know, when you look at the way that this negotiation has gone, um, the, the things that the players were talking about wanting, um, addressing service time manipulation, addressing tanking, getting younger players paid earlier in their careers, these were the things that, uh, that players were screaming from the hilltops. And, and Max Scherzer actually tweeted something exactly along these lines. Here are the things we're fighting for. And MLB basically addressed all of them, right? They, they put in a draft lottery to address yep. the tanking. They put in some rules as far as service time manipulation to give guys full years of service. Uh, they raised the minimum salary to $700,000. They, they took the union's idea for that pre-arbitration pool and put that in there. Obviously, the two sides disagree on the number, but you know, like we know, there's always a number that's palatable for both sides eventually. Like you said, they're not that far apart. Um, they're not. You know, the area that, that seems to be the biggest issue is the CBT, and I think that's going to continue to be the biggest issue um, because for all the people who want to vilify Rob Manfred, and clearly there are a lot of them, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to be the guy to have to explain to the owners of teams like the Pirates and the Orioles that 
the same thing that's good for the Yankees and the Dodgers is good for them. So, you know, they're small markets, big markets. There are different uh, priorities. And I think that, um, you know, Manfred's job is to try to convince at least 23 owners that there's a deal that's good for everybody. And, uh, you know, so there's a, there's a, a line that he has to walk there, I think. You know a lot of the people who are involved in this, and you generally know both sides. Do they want a deal? And if they want a deal, who wants it more, the players or the owners? I think they both want a deal. Everybody wants to be playing. I mean, the one, the one uh, thing that really? I can tell you is having talked talk to people is, uh, you know, nobody likes this. This is not a fun process for anybody. And uh, I think the idea that, uh, you're now in a situation where you're you're canceling games, where you know players are going to be missing paychecks, where owners are going to be missing gates, where fans are going to be missing the opportunity to play, you know, to watch the games. Uh, you know, opening day is a day everybody loves. There, there's if there's one day of universal happiness on a baseball calendar, it's opening day. Everybody in baseball press boxes and in baseball stadiums all around this country, people say Happy New Year to each other. It's like a, it's like a festive day. I mean, the idea that I mean, look, there will be an opening day at some point, and that will be opening day if it's not March 31st or whatever date it may be. Um, I know there's theories out there that well, the owners are happy not to have April games because of revenues and all that, but you know, they're fighting over over money that you hope is still there afterwards because the. Uh, you know, there are going to be some fans who are turned off by this, and I think it's bad for the game in general. Rob Manford himself said it's a disastrous outcome, uh, you know, to have games canceled, but that's where we are right now. So, yeah, I do think both sides want um, a deal, and it's interesting. Uh, I talking at one point to a former player who is now in a front office type role, and I said to him, is it, is it weird for you to be on this side? And he said, I wish people would stop talking about sides. We're all on the same side. We're all on the same side of this game. And I said, well, that's a nice sentiment. It's naive, but it's a nice sentiment. You know, um, I understand that the president of the United States can't do what I'm about to suggest that the president of the United States should do. I wonder if George W. Bush were the president of the United States now, if he would actually attempt to do this because he was once the owner of the Texas Rangers. But it's sort of the recognition that we're coming through, hopefully we're coming through and out of a pandemic. There's... We're on the verge of nuclear war in a place that none of us understands, and our European allies are on, you know, they're the target. We're not, but they are. But we have colossal bad stuff going on. And baseball is good. All sports are good for the national soul. And I sort of wish the President of the United States would get up there and say that, and say, why don't you both sit down at a table and call me when you've worked this out and stay there until you've worked this out. Is How naive a sentiment is that? I think George W. Bush might have done that. I'm not, I, wouldn't, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I think he might, but I think he's also the only one. I don't think, you yeah. know, I think right now, think about this. If Joe Biden actually did that right now, how much criticism would he get from people saying, this is what you're worried about, this is what you're spending your time on? I mean, you know, look, for me, I would love to be, writing about baseball instead of labor. Uh, yeah. I'd love to be, uh, you know, the, as we always talked about with, this, with steroids, this is not why I got into the sports writing, right? So to write about bargaining sessions. So yeah, I'd be all for it. I'd be all for anything uh, that would, that would, you know, sort of speed this process up, but this process is what it is. And, um, 
you know, it's going to play itself out, and hopefully it plays itself out sooner than later. I should ask you this. Wilbon made a comment the other day uh, in asking a question of Jeff Passan uh, that, you know, the average person is on the side of the players. Do you sense that? Is the average person on the side of the players? I went to a pharmacist yesterday to get a refill on a prescription, and the guy said to me, what's with these players? They make so much money. What? Why can't they settle? So I didn't. I don't know who the average guy is on the side of. Do you? I don't. I think the vocal minority on social media, as you know from all your experience on Twitter, I, yeah, don't uh, read it is clearly, I believe, on the player's side. They've made Rob the, the villain, and, and you know, and then when you have players like Marcus Stroman tweeting about, you know, Manfred got to go, the commissioner is always the villain. Okay, in every sport, the yeah. commissioner is the easiest target, right? I mean, every football fan hates Goodell. Every hockey fan hates Batman. Every baseball fan hates Batman. Like, that's always an easy uh, target. But that said, it's a vocal minority on Twitter. I have a friend who I speak with about these things all the time, and, and he said the same thing to me that your uh, person at the pharmacy said. Pharmacist. Said, I don't understand. That they yeah. have a really good offer. They offered to boost the minimum salary up all this money and they did all this other stuff. So I don't know who the average fan is necessarily backing in this. I think the one sort of thing unifying all of them is they just want to see the game back on the field. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, – that with last week's sort of marathon negotiation behind them and maybe a better sense of where each of them stands now that that has happened, um, you know, maybe. And as you saw at the end of that negotiation, that the league started bringing in some of the rule things, right? The pitch clock and the, yes, um, yes. you know, those things. Maybe that becomes part of this negotiation now and saying, okay, well, it's going to take some more money to get the players on board. Let's try to let's try to make the game better while we're doing this, and I think that would be a plus as well, uh, you know, for for the game and for the fans because you know we know the product's gotten a little uh, problematic at times, and you know I think things like a pitch clock and uh, you know eventually the shifts they wanted he, they mentioned no shifts yeah they mentioned right, no shifts that was the other one that's a big yeah. one and you know and I, I think some of those University. things would really help the game so we'll see yeah. what happens. All right, so a couple of minutes ago, you, you sounded very confident and optimistic that eventually there would be an opening day. So uh, I'll just ask you this, because so you don't see a doomsday scenario where they tank the whole season, where this season doesn't exist, right? You don't see that. I don't think so. I think, you know, both sides will be arguing over money that all of a sudden, well, great, you now have a much smaller pie to, to argue over. Uh, if you lose a whole season in this era, where there are so many more entertainment options than there were in 1994-95. I just think it's going to do, I don't know if I would say irreparable damage, but long-term damage for sure. Um, And I think both sides realize that, you know, whether you're on the players, whether you're you're in management, the game will really, really suffer if you lose an entire season because, uh, you know, falling out of the consciousness of, uh, of your fans' heads for an entire year coming off of COVID and everything else that we've been dealing with in this world right now, I just think that would be uh, <laughs> disastrous isn't even a strong enough word to use. What's your best guess as to what will happen in the near term? And by the near term, I mean within if it's supposed to start on basically April 1st by, say, May 15th. Do you see it starting by May 15th? Uh, I do. I think there will be... Okay. Uh, I think there will be a deal. I don't know when. I don't want to make predictions because then you'll right. end up on the internet, and you know. Uh, don't don't pay attention. Bad. The internet. The internet's the worst <laughs> thing that ever happened to the world. It's the worst Wait, Tony, thing. I, 
I write for the internet. I write for a website. How can you say that to me? I wouldn't have just... a, a. I couldn't pay my mortgage without the internet. Mm. Mm. The internet is so bad. But so I what don't do you like think? making predictions like that because I, you know I, I don't. I don't have any idea when it's going to start. But I would be surprised if by May fifteenth we're not we're not watching baseball games. May first. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, look, may, one thing that keeps popping up in my head: April fifteenth, Jackie Robinson Day. 75th yeah. anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking into the major league. That's right, 47. Big, that's right. That's right. Big day yeah. on the baseball calendar. And wouldn't it be kind of cool if that was opening day? Yeah. And by the way, if that was opening day in the future, it would be fine. And by the way, if the NBA had 60 games and not 84 or 82, yeah, you know, we could shorten a lot of seasons and make a lot more people happy. Thank you, Mark. Let's, thank you. Thank you. Let's get the NFL back to 16 also. That one made a lot more sense. 17's idiotic. It's just idiotic. <laughs> Mark Feinstein, boys and girls. We'll take a break. Barry's Verluga will join us when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is Norwegian Soft Kitten, one of the great band names we've ever heard. <laughs> Norwegian Soft Kitten is Glenn Bergots or Bergots and Alan Green. And they write, both of us were born in Crooked Witch's Neck, Idaho. It's a great wow, name. Can't be a big town. <laughs> the Mount Rushmore of Crooked Witch's Neck consists of Murray Benson, noted local raconteur, Jesse Nesbitt, who in 1987 became the first local resident to break the thousand mark on the SAT. That's a funny line. <laughs> Annie Jenkins, who once skinned a beaver in under five minutes, and Norm Edwards, who with six books read in their entirety as the all-time crooked witch's neck leader in that category. <laughs> On another note, we just released our latest single. It's called And Yet. As always, thank you for playing our songs, and we hope you all like this one. Love these guys. Michael, if people like Norwegian Soft Kitten want to send in their original music, how do they do so? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at TonyQuinizerShow.com. And I got an update from Joe Arrow. He got the date wrong. Uh, surprise, surprise. So the jingle trek is uh, March 5th, Saturday, March 5th. And that is, That's again, tomorrow. going to be at the Nashville Music Loft. That's tomorrow. Floor number tomorrow. two, yes. So and if you haven't one. gone to Nashville no, no, yet, the, you better get the there. The meet yeah. and greet, uh, jingle meet, I think, is tonight at the same location. In Nashville. So, so go say hi to uh, to, to Mr. Arrow and ask him about the uh, the Orioles and what's going on at Catcher this year. Um, are we selling anything for Johnny O? Uh, yeah, we have the the TK upset as we are all looking forward to bracket week. TK upset. Barry Sverluga joins us now. He has decided not to stay in China. He came back to the United States. You want to just wrap up the Olympics for us, just in this sense. When we talked to you from there, you were not upbeat. You were not upbeat. Did that sort of not depression, but disappointment in, in the circumstances that you faced as, as somebody covering this, did that stay with you the whole time, and could you not wait to leave? 
Absolutely. I mean, I was on the first plane out of there that I could get. Um, and, yeah. and Tony, I don't, I think disappointment might be framing it a little bit wrong because we kind of knew the logistics of what we were getting into. You, you knew it was going to be an Olympics where you were in a loop and anybody in the loop could not go out and anybody out could not come in. And so therefore it was not going to be any sort of cultural experience. It was going to be, as we discussed before, you know, a TV show that had to happen to be staged in, in China um, on the, fl- on the way back because of the really weird um, regulations and restrictions that uh, the Chinese had placed on where flights could go to and come from. Um, we actually, some of us flew through Paris and had like a 20 hour layover in Paris, a night in Paris. Oh, good. And good. that, that felt, I can't describe to you how free that felt to, to walk the streets and go into a restaurant. And, and it, you know, it's by coincidence, Paris is where the next Olympics are. So um, mm-hmm. in 2024, and it just felt like, okay, maybe, you know, we've turned a corner here. We've had these two pandemic Olympics that were staged in, in weird circumstances to pro- fulfill a TV contract. And, and maybe two years on, we could get to a situation where in, you know, one of the world's great cities, we get to experience um, not just the athletic events and, and the television program that results, but, but the culture and the people and the food and, and everything else that should go around a, a complete Olympic experience. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go into the doom of the Olympics because I believe, and I'm sure you believe as well that there is a liberating quality to not being in a country that is completely repressive and not being in a country that's completely recessive, oppressive while there is a pandemic going on. So I'm, perfectly willing to believe that the next ones are going to be good. But what I'm not so willing to believe is this, and this is something you do for a living and I did for a living and I don't anymore. Access to athletes in all sports, in where you live in the United States, not just Olympics, where you live in the United States, access to athletes, that's getting far, far more limited and that's going to make it much harder to do your job, don't you think? thousand percent and and yeah. you know this will seem like a, a tangent but it's it's really not i mean major league baseball is obviously um you know killing itself uh but in yeah. during the pandemic and, and as somebody who has covered baseball a lot um one thing i've always valued about it is the amount of time you have in the clubhouse before games and at batting practice and sitting on the bench and chatting with people um you know the last time i was on we talked about Ryan Zimmerman's retirement and and me talking to him uh, before he announced that. Well, how did that happen? It happened because I know this person uh, and I've known him for whatever it is, 18 years. And that's not a, uh, it's not a, just a transactional thing. It's like, you know, I know his kids' names and, and, um, and therefore you get richer, better stories. If you take away the access and that whether that's at the Olympics or in an NFL locker room or before major league baseball games. And, and that's one thing that may be legislated into the CBA is less time yep. into the, in the clubhouse for reporters, yep. mm-hmm. then, then the richness and, and depth of your stories is going to suffer and, and you're going to get more generic um, people's stories are just going to be much more similar because the access is going to be the same. That's a fear that we all have. Um, it's something 
we have to be disciplined on trying to to break through. Um, and, you know, I, I would say, you know, one of the characters of this Olympics and failure was was Michaela Schifrin. Um, why were the stories, even though the stories seemed very similar, her failure time and time again, why was there richness? Because she she spoke and she spoke openly. And, and those of us who have known her for a long time um, kind of know where to lead her and how how to get the best answers out. Um, that all matters for the consumer, the consumer who's taking these stories in, just reading about it might not think about the process, but the process matters and the process is in danger. It's, it's awful what is going to happen and what is happening now, and it leads to people, and this is a cliche, but I'm going to use it, it leads to people who sit in their basements and get on the internet and call themselves sports writers, and they don't know anything about the people they're talking about. And so it just leads to overpraising and over-criticizing, and it's not sports writing and the job that I held and loved and always wanted, that's gone. It's gone. Barry, you're one of the last guys hanging on because it's, as you know, once they deny you that access, everybody's in the same bathtub. Really? I think I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. Yeah, you're not. I mean, I think that's the the doom and gloom version. And and believe me, that's what I'm majoring. Think about it. Well, right, for sure. And I I join you in that club. We'll meet on every other Sunday. But um, (laughs) I I I do think that my job, um, you know, in the second half of of my career, is to fight against that and to make sure that you don't fall into the trap of well, they're not. Access isn't what it once was, and therefore I'm going to stand here and just gripe about it. No, you're going to you're going to work against it. And you're going to do your best. That's to, right. To that's right. You know, know the people that you cover, and and Tony, you know this, and and this is, I'm not going to rail against, as you said, the, the people in the basement because I do think you can do good, deep analytical work by observing and not necessarily knowing the people you cover. But the difference is when you have to write a critical thing about someone that you know and deal with. You think about that process more thoroughly, I think. And then, as you know, when you do write that critical thing, part of your job is to show up the next day. Show up the next day. Here I am, pal. Uh, Yes. And so we can... You go at me or don't go at me, but we're yeah. no one's hiding from anything here. That's right. Here I and am, I, Adam I, Oates. I told you to get out of town. Yeah, here exactly. I am. Exactly. Yeah. And, and no, I, yeah, I and get it. Whether whether you're writing about them or not, the next day you got to be there. So that yeah. that makes me sad that there's a whole group of folks who don't understand the the give and take and the relationship that even even a you know tense and and fraught relationship, um, you know, that matters. That matters. So uh, we're getting into a little sausage making here, but I I think I'm always fascinated by it and and I'm concerned about it. I'm going to move off that and and get to the topic that I really wanted to talk about, even though this was really good because it allowed me to vent for a while and hear you as well. Mike Krzyzewski's coaching his last game at Cameron um, either tomorrow or Sunday. I think it's tomorrow. Tickets are like (laughs) $80,000 to get in. You went to Duke. I'm going to lean on you. You went to Duke, and Mike was the coach there because you'd have to be my age if Mike wasn't the coach there um, and, and know about it and go to college in that period of time. How well did you know him? What is the Duke experience with Mike Krzyzewski like? I mean, I've got to assume 
That's like a god on earth in Durham, North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like I want to separate separate myself into into two beings. I mean, you know, there's the student, and this is not an overstatement, Tony. I mean, when I was evaluating schools to go to, um, knowing as a high school person, I probably wanted to be a, a sports writer. Um, you know, the the other places that I was considering didn't have a, a great basketball team to cover. And so it sounds really ridiculous to make your college choice based on whether the men's basketball team was, was good. No, or not. it but sounds, kind of, no, it sounds right. If that's, if you want to be a sports writer, it sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, as you work your way through the college paper there, the Chronicle, um, you, you don't cover men's basketball as, as a freshman. No, um, no. so, and then there's, you know, there's a bunch of us fighting for games as, uh, as a juniors and, and, and seniors. Um, Krzyzewski at that time used to have a preseason uh, meeting with the Chronicle staff. And, and you felt like, you know, you were kind of going into um, the King's chambers and, and he would sit and answer. It was just a, you know, it was a thing he did for the student paper. I don't know if he, if he continued that 20 and 25 years later. Um, but it was, I remember it. And there were people who were people on the, on the student paper who were critical of, of him. I, I remember being, um, in awe. Uh, and, and that was when I was in school, um, they made the final four, uh, they were on a stretch of five straight Final Fours that resulted in in their first two national championships, and it was just it's just hard to overstate how much of the social environment, the daily discourse, the just general goings on 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 campus had to do with the basketball team and, and with Mike Shevsky, and and obviously. Um, you know, that continued uh, long after I left. This was, you know, they were yeah. camping out outside. It was called Krzyzewskiville. He he was the most important person on a campus that has a lot more to produce than just, just men's basketball. Were you there with Leighton and Hurley? Is that your period of time? Hurley was in my, uh, in my freshman dorm. Um, yeah, he and I were classmates. Uh, yeah. Leitner was a year ahead of me. So those were the, you know, I mean, I was on campus for um, the Duke Kentucky game, um, kind of regretting not being in Philadelphia. At the I was in Philadelphia, baby front row. Yeah, <laughs> yeah ex- exactly. Next and, to Lupica and, and Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, so the, the, you know, I was thinking, well, wouldn't it have been great to be at that game? Well, maybe, but um, it was great to be on campus that, that night yeah. uh, because, that was the, the party of all parties. And then I went to the final four in, in Minneapolis the, the next week and they beat, you know, the fab five and, and, um, yeah. and Indiana. So anyway, I mean, just to, to have that perspective of, of kind of being, you know, just a kid in, in awe of the whole thing. And then, you know, later in, in life, I cycled back through and worked at the Raleigh paper and actually had covered North Carolina as a, as a beat. Um, and then, you know, it was on me to, to, I, I, I couldn't be a, a Duke fan covering North Carolina. Um, and so that kind of got sucked out of me and, and, you know, and then came here and, and, you know, Gary Williams knew exactly where I went to school when I was covering Maryland in the ACC. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't really want to 
be painting your face blue and white and showing up to mm-hmm. uh, Cole Fieldhouse. So, um, so then to see Shashevsky as kind of the um, the lord of the sport and in a much different light. I mean, I, I I would get annoyed by him because I thought there was a period of time where he he just had to be the smartest guy in the room. He usually was the smartest guy in the room, but he had to kind of really hang his hat on that in a way that I didn't think was necessary. Um, but then I also think later in his career, he's just so smart about what the sport needs. He obviously adapted to the one and done era, which, you know, in my era of going to school there, you would never have thought that, that, um, that he would, you know, be like, Oh yeah, we can just crank out these kids for the NBA because that was what was best for the kids. It was serving the kids. And to see that transformation, um, and his understanding of his whole sport and where it needs to go and what it's lacking and why it's in danger, um, I think was really kind yeah. of a neat trans- transition. So we had him on PTI yesterday, and I go back with him to Army before he even coached wow. at Duke. We used to go to these college basketball luncheons at Mama Leone's in Manhattan, and the three young guys were P.J. Carlissimo, whose dad was such a giant in college basketball in, in New York at, and at Manhattan University, and P.J. was coaching at Wagner, and Jimmy Valvano was coaching at Iona, and Mike Krzyzewski was coaching at Army. And so that's, that's a, that is a long way back. He was on the show yesterday, and he was decidedly playful, which is important because he's not always playful. And I guess what I wanted to ask you is when you worked at, at the Duke paper, he doesn't have to be nice to you. Was he fair to you? Did you always think he was fair to you? To me personally, yes. Um, Absolutely. And he does have an interesting history with the student paper. And, and you know, yes. that sometimes sometimes the coaches erroneously think that the student paper should be supportive of the team, that it's part of the, the institution and, and should be kind of with pom poms cheering along. And that's, you know, if you're if you're trying to be a sports writer and be a professional about it, that's not a, how it goes about. When I was in school, I believe it was my freshman year, it was before I was even working at the paper or covering the basketball team, um, he had a pretty famous or infamous meeting with the Chronicle staff, sports staff, after one of the, I think it was the sports editor, did kind of a, a mid-season grades thing on each player on the team. And, you know, not all the grades were, were A's. And he called the staff in and had them meet with the team and then lit up lit up and if you know Mike Krzyzewski lit up uh it means it it, you know there's a lot of f-bombs and and yeah um it's not a gentle tongue lash he's not a choir boy he went to the United States Military Academy he's he served no 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 he's if you think he's a choir boy if you if you you get in a dugout you can't tell him from Gary you know like in in the huddle you can't tell him from Gary you can't Nope. That's right. So, and and yeah. maybe Gary didn't hide it as as well. And, and That's in some right. ways I admire that. Um, but but anyway, he upgraded the the Chronicle staff for for grading grading these players and and um, uh, putting his team he thought in an unfair position. And it actually was a bit of a tenuous time for him because um, that somebody in that room had was taping the conversation and they <laughs> ran it as a story in the in the student paper and. I think this was 1990. It was either 89 or 90. 
before he won the national championship. And I'm not saying his job was in danger, but it was a real controversy. And it was part of, I think, his evolution. Um, a couple of years ago, he similarly kind of called out a, a student reporter in a postgame situation. This might have been even just two years ago. Um, and the end result of that is like he he didn't feel great about it. And he called the kid on the on the phone, you know, a day later or two days later. And, and I don't know if apologize was the right word, but talked it through. Um, so I think, you know, he just like any of us over the course of your career, um, you evolve. And he, and he evolved both in the way he handled his program, I think, in the way that he dealt with the media um, including the student media and the student body. And just, you know, um, he's going to get a lot of uh, praise and, and uh, pie-ins over the next, you know, not just tomorrow going into this last game at Cameron, but as he heads into the last march of, of his career. Um, they're well-deserved because of the thousand wins and, and all that stuff. But but really, I think in a, in a Dean Smith kind of way, um, you've got to kind of acknowledge the the role he played in shaping the sport and reacting to the changes in his sport and adapting um, both in style of play and in, in roster construction and the way he dealt with his kids. If you go back over, over 40 years, it's a, it's a remarkable kind of career arc, not just because of all the, you know, five national championships and 12 final fours, but because he, he understood his sport and, and, helped it change and went with the changes in a, in a way that shows um, just a really smart and, and forward thinking and always in the present and never lamenting the way it once was um, that, that, that I think is really admirable and, and if not unique, something to, to look to, to as a model um, to, to not, not wallow in the way it once was, but really seize what's right in front of you. I don't have to tell you to write that, do I? I mean, you're going to write this, aren't you? <laughs> I'm, I'm, going to to the ACC, yeah, I'm going to the ACC tournament and, and yeah. you know, he's, yeah. yeah, I mean. Yeah, I, all right, good. I don't want to play editor, but you have to write this. <laughs> I mean, you have, but, you have personal experience. You, you just, you have to write it. You know that. And we, that. yes, we're, we're yeah. of the same mind here. All right, thank you. Enjoy yourself Thanks. at the Thanks. ACC tournament. Barry's Verluga, boys and girls. Great pleasure to have him on the air. Great pleasure to read him all the time. We'll take a break. We'll have email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. I love that they did this. <laughs> I love great. this. The Mizzou marching band. It's, it's an honor. That's just an honor. You want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad? Yes, thank you, Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you'll be thrilled. That'll just about do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, it doesn't matter what they say. I know I'm going to love you any old way. What can I do without you? Don't want nobody. Nobody. Baby, it's you. The Shirelles did that, and they did it great. But Smith, it's <laughs> yeah. astonishing. Yeah. It's astonishing. You don't want to try and hit those nuts like she does? Whoa. <laughs> Thanks to our guests today, Mark Feinstein, Barry's Verluga. Thanks to the sponsors, Freshly and X-Chair. 
Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. We're back to the hometowns. We're going to call a halt on this from after a while. From Tim Storniolo in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. Nobody even remotely famous or important claims Mukwanago, Mug, Mugwanago, Wisconsin. Population 7355 is their hometown. In fact, you incorrectly pronouncing it on this podcast is the most attention it's received <laughs> since winning the high school football championship in 2004. It's Mugwanago, damn it. P.S. My dog weighs 35 pounds. So that was a good one. I, you know, I'm having trouble separating these emails every once in a while. Uh, from Robert Hall, and clearly not that Robert Hall, Fort Washington, Maryland, Riddick and Bo. Riddick, Bo, and me. That's it. That's the list. Thanks, Rob Hall. From Amos Euron, and he goes, oh, so we're doing famous people from our hometown now? Amos Euron, Nazareth, Israel. Okay, so I think we got that one. That might be the winner. I think, I think that's probably the winner. From Kurt Unruh in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, after hearing the countless emails about famous people from either the towns they grew up in or live in, I thought it was my turn to hop on the bandwagon. While Fort Wayne, Indiana, my current hometown, is the home of Kevin Kiermeyer of the Tampa Bay Rays, former manager Eric Wedge, Pro Football Hall of Fame Rod Woodson, and cheer star Shelley Long, Fort Wayne is also the home of Major Frank Burns of the 4077 <laughs> Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, that's MASH, kids, and Fawn Leibowitz, who tragically died <laughs> in a kiln explosion while making a pot for our Very boyfriend, sad. Eric Stratton. Fort Wayne, Indiana, pretty big, but that's really good. Uh, from Dennis Dobbs in Cleveland, Ohio. I watched a Georgetown game on Sunday. Just curious if they could get one win in the conference. It's a sad story when Patrick Ewing's job may be at risk. It is not now. But honestly, his team looks like a bunch of high schoolers. They're really bad. Clearly, he can't recruit any top players. It's a sad ending to a short tenure. I'm originally from Fargo, North Dakota. Roger Maris. Eat it, McGuire, Sosa, and Bonds. Patrick Ewing's job is no longer. If it was in jeopardy ever, it is not. Yeah, the voter um, yeah. But they stink. They're no good. They stink. Let's see if he can make it better. From Tim Steve Tomaskovich in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, home of the flood. Well, my hometown may be most famous for its floods. Yeah, 1889 and 1977. We've had some notable residents. Pro Football Hall of Fame linebacker Jack Ham went to my high school. AL Cy Young Award winner Pete Vukovic is another you may be familiar with. But I'm willing to bet you haven't heard of Steve Ditko. Steve Ditko is the creator of both Doctor Strange and Spider-Man. Yes, that's Spider-Man. Anyone who tells you Spider-Man is from New York is a rum dog. <laughs> so we're Bootsy's entering a big Spider-Man face. He's is got that the right? socks. That's, oh, that's fun. Good. That's fun. From Jamie Tulin in Albany, New York. Doesn't like it superheroes yet. I was born in Binghamton, New York. Speedy's for life, but grew up in Kingston, New York. And here's a small list of slightly famous people from Kingston. Rob Perkins, former drummer for Michael Buble. Ezra Fitch. The Fitch in Abercrombie and Fitch was a lawyer in Kingston before joining Abercrombie in his clothing store and buying him out. Ann Sweeney, co-chair of Disney Media and present, president of the Disney ABC television group, a.k.a. your boss, is from Kingston, New York. Although if she reads that letter from Dave Joseph, <laughs> she may not be your boss much longer. P.S. Ten outlets in our kitchen, but one is dedicated to our mixer, Sir Mix-a-Lot. From Joey Vosters. I'm from Appleton, Wisconsin. We got Willem Dafoe, who was recently admitted to who's recently admitted to being from Appleton on his recent SNL hosting gig. We've also got Joseph McCarthy, the U.S. Senator. Mm, mm. Scratch that one. Bad example. <clears throat> More importantly, though, he wasn't born here. We, we lay claim to the one and only Harry Houdini, a man so famous that you can use his verb if you want. Take that, Framebridge. <laughs> 
He was Houdini. He was. <laughs> from Brian Conrady, or Conrady, I don't know, from Mishokaka, I don't know how to pronounce that, Indiana. It's an Indian name, I'm sure, and I'm getting it wrong. I thought I'd tell you a little bit about my hometown, Alton, Illinois. The list of those born in the small town on the Mississippi River includes the famous Miles Davis and the infamous James Earl Ray. But I'd argue Alton's most famous son is none other than Robert Pershing Wadlow, the tallest person in recorded history, according to Guinness, also known as the Gentle Giant. Robert had grown to 8 feet 11 inches and weighed 439 pounds on the date of his death in 1940 at age 22. Yeah, because his body could not. It was not sustainable. According to the Google machine, his great height was due to a condition called hypertrophy of the pituitary gland, which resulted in abnormally high levels of human growth hormone. Incredibly, it's believed he was still growing at the time of his death, which was the result of an infection caused by a faulty ankle brace. Robert is buried in Alton, and there's a life-size statue in the middle of town. Be sure to stop by next time you're in town. Thanks to you and your team uh, for years of listening and enjoyment, a habit I've successfully handed down to my son, another grateful little. And there's a photograph of Robert with his father, and I pass this, wow, first to Nigel and then to Michael. Cody Payton, Denver, Colorado. After catching up on a few past episodes, I wanted to toss my hat in the small towns with famous people game. Neil Armstrong made his post-moon landing home in Lebanon, Ohio. My father worked on Mr. Armstrong's farms for years. I ain't going to work on Maggie's farm. (laughs) Growing up, baling hay and other chores. My father said Mr. Armstrong was the quietest man he ever met. Also, the great Woody Harrelson went to high school with my uncle in the late 70s. Interesting fact, Woody's father was rumored to have been a hitman. It's not a rumor, he says. From Mark Desick in now Riva, Maryland. My hometown is Bowie, Maryland, which does not have a long list of famous people. However, we do have one, Kathy Lee Epstein, now Kathy Lee Gifford. During her rise to fame right around the time she married Gifford, she was invited to speak at my old high school graduation, 1986. Let me summarize her message to my graduating class. Someday, if you work really hard, you may be half as successful as I am. I hate her. (laughs) Now, I met her and spent a little time with her and liked her very, very much. Yeah, you get along with her, right? I did very much. At least she didn't say they'd be working for somebody from St. Albans. That's right. That was said to you. From Phil, by, my by, by me, in the Murray graduation, which I thought was a pretty funny line. From Phil DeStito in Rome, New York, which is upstate near Utica. The population of my hometown of Rome, New York is roughly 32,000. Is this too much or does it qualify for famous people in my hometown game? It does, 32,000. Francis Bellamy, author of The Pledge of Allegiance. Pat Riley, yeah. That Pat Riley. (laughs) Tony Washington, Olympian and world champion in the discus. Rob Manfred. Yeah, that (laughs) Rob Manfred. And though he's not from here, Alex Haley, author of Roots, did live here for a year, so we got that going for us. That's pretty impressive. That is. From Rome, New York. From Chris Danisau. I hope I pronounced that right. We're going to end on this because it's really funny. Tony, I grew up in Northwest D.C., east of Chevy Chase Circle. I lived in 32nd Place. My best friend was on Rittenhouse Street. Went to Lafayette Elementary School. There was this radio guy, Dave McConnell, lived on the corner of Rittenhouse in Utah. No one else comes to mind. <laughs> Get out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always. Do wear white. That's I'm going funny. to solve. All right. Corno curl cabinet. No, you're an idiot.
Even though he's hitting 315 For a guy hitting 265 Who never sings off key We'll give you Cobb and Crawford Tossing Kovaleski For the kid at the end of your bench Who sings that harmony I know this guy can't play center But he's the American League's best tenor Go ahead, take Trout, take Shohei Otani, give us Doolittle and Swero, and hear that harmony. This song is brought to you today by earlier times, back when Baltines traveled by train and had to have one, two, four-part harmony.